Hi, I'm Sean McCambridge, Managing Director of Stellar Recruitment. Thanks for joining me on this journey to uncover the secrets of inspirational leaders. The reason I put this together is to share the unique journeys of these successful individuals and really unpack how they've achieved success and hopefully inspire others to do similar things. So thanks for tuning in and listening, and I hope you enjoy the series. Chris, uh, thanks for joining us as part of the uh, Inspirational Leaders podcast series. I'm really looking forward to hearing about your story. Maybe we'll start at the beginning. Where sure. did it all start? Where are you from? Sure. So, you know, my business career started when I was actually a, a kid at school, to be honest. I, I was always coming up with a, a new idea to run a business. And one of the ones, one of the early ones was our school didn't have a school canteen. And so a friend of myself used to go and buy you know, chocolate bars and cans of soft drink at uh, Franklin's actually it was at the time. I don't know if people even remember Franklin's supermarkets. We used to bring them to school. We'd sell them for 100% markup, you know, and uh, in a school of a 1,000 kids with no school canteen, it was pretty easy revenue. We did really well out of that. And, of course, when you're 15, you don't think about things like tax. Uh, so <laughs> it was all tax-free too. Yeah, um, So that was really how my, my entrepreneurial journey started and obviously had a string of businesses since then. Yeah. Where did that where did that start? I mean, was that entrepreneurial flair inherent? Did you learn it from someone around you? I really don't know. It just seemed like if you wanted something, you needed some money to buy it. And I found from a pretty early age that earning money was was pretty easy. I had other things. I had like a car washing run. I had multiple paper rounds. At one stage when our school canteen got shut down because the school actually opened their own canteen, which was my first introduction to competition, <laughs> actually used to run uh, horse races. Uh, every Tuesday at lunchtime, we'd, we'd run sweeps across all of the years in the school. <laughs> I, that. So, I don't know, it's just something that, that happened. It was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. It uh, seems like you had a, a bit of an eye for opportunity and uh, you uh, had the courage to, to do something about it. Yep. So... I'm now perhaps going to ask you quite possibly the, the most long-winded question I've ever asked anyone, but I'm doing this to build context, so uh-huh. hang in there, stick with me. So while uh, studying sports marketing at university, you start a corporate sports clothing company called Scody, one of the largest suppliers in the industry and still operating today, before selling your interest in 99, to start first-class accountants, a bookkeeping and accounting franchise business where you grow this rapidly become the largest bookkeeping services franchisor in Australia with over 150 uh, franchise businesses working out of most major cities across Australia before selling in 2002. Concurrent with this, and whilst running First Class Accountants, you start your third business, this time in the real estate industry in 2001, after purchasing Harcourt's Paddington Real Estate for $6,000 in 10 years. You grow the business to become one of Queensland's largest real estate businesses. It took you just two years in the industry for the business to be ranked in the top five Harcourts offices in Queensland. In 2006, you sell the Harcourts property centre real estate business to concentrate solely on property management. The property management division of the real estate business was renamed Rental Express and goes on to become a property management business of more than 3,500 properties under management which was also Queensland's largest and Australia's fastest growing property management organisation. What was the formula for this business success, <laughs> if you can remember? And, you know, why has Chris Rolls been successful? Um, yeah, interesting. Uh, so one of those things there, that the numbers of properties under management actually got to a bit over 5,000. Wow. Um, so, look, the formula for success, uh, interestingly, is that I don't know all that much about managing property i don't know that much i'm not an accountant uh i don't know how to sew clothes together but when it comes to to running a business i think you know if you had to say what was the one thing that you did well i i learned how to manage people well at a really early age um and part of that was i was in the army for a few years um and you know exposed particularly at the royal military college uh to to managing you know, people, a lot of people say, well, you're in your army, you tell someone to do something, they do it. And that's actually not the case. And that's most certainly not the case in, in private enterprise. You know, from a very early age, had people as part of you know, my role in the army that I was managing and overseeing. And the same thing in my first business, which was Scotty, when I was, you know, in my early 20s when I had that. And 
And I think that's the key. If you can manage people, you mm. can find people that are experts in whatever it is that you do. Mm. Uh, the question is, can you engage them? Can you keep them there? Mm. Can you grow them? Can you, you know, improve their productivity? Mm. And if you can, you can really build a business irrespective of the product or service you sell. Put your humbleness aside and throw another question on the back of that. Uh, why do you think those people chose to work with or for you on your various you know, uh, journeys that you took? The answer to that would be around the, uh, the environment, the culture. I mean, if, mm. I know that sounds very cliche, mm. but you know, over, over a period of time, having spent a lot of time in a lot of different businesses, not just my own businesses, you can walk into an organization and you can get an understanding of what culture is like almost immediately, just with the feel and the vibe within, within an office environment or a factory environment. And it, it's, it's actually very tangible once you understand how to identify it, which is really important when you're looking at, at, at investing in businesses and buying businesses and things like that. You know, so I think one of the things that we provided was, was a fun culture. You know, there was never a time in any of our businesses where we won't, weren't doing some, you know, crazy outlandish thing. You know, there's a million examples of them, of stuff that we did uh, over the years that just kind of, most people go, well, couldn't comprehend doing that in you know in the workplace environment but it was fun so we did it you know sometimes got in a little bit of trouble for some of the things we did but it, that's just what we did yeah yeah and just picking up on that how would you define your leadership brand uh, leadership brand i think as a leader I, you know i really enjoy watching people grow so so someone working with me i place a lot more emphasis on their potential rather than their experience because i have this sort of view that Learning is kind of a non-stop journey. It's something I'm very big on personally. I'm constantly learning, reading, attending conferences, you know, tertiary education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I try and instill that with everyone I work with. So people will get more learning opportunities working in a business that, that that I have something to do with than probably anywhere else. And when people learn, you know, they can overcome new challenges and they become more productive and they they remain engaged. Hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So just going back to the Rental Express journey. Under your leadership and prior to being purchased by Rich Lister, Paul Little, uh, as we touched on before, Rental Express was Queensland's largest and Australia's fastest growing property management organisation. How did you do this in such a saturated marketplace? And, and maybe specifically, how did the, the likes of innovation or customer service play a part in that? Yeah, so so you're right about the, the competition. So an absolutely saturated market Um all of the business that we were growing was pretty much coming from competitors as opposed to being a sort of a, it wasn't like there was a greenfield opportunity or a growing market necessarily. And the market grows fractionally every year. But the, the way that we approach that is that if you look at your average real estate business in Australia, they do two things. They do sales and they do property management. And the person that is running that business is typically a salesperson who's grown up through the sales ranks. And that's just what they naturally focus on. We looked at the property management business from a business perspective. We applied, you know, marketing techniques. We were very early adopters of, you know, basically things like you take search engine optimization and now SEO, everyone knows what it is, everyone knows it exists, but this is back in the days where and I remember when I first Googled the term property management Brisbane and the number one ranked site that came up was the Brisbane Airport Corporation. Mm. That has nothing to do no. with property management in the context of residential property management. So I did what I've spent most of my life doing is I googled how do I get to number one on Google for a search term found about 10 steps implemented them a week later we were number one for the term property management Brisbane I thought oh that's interesting and why don't I just apply that to the term property management followed by every suburb in Brisbane and property manager followed by the term you know every suburb in Brisbane and over a course of probably about six months managed to you know become one of the top three Google websites for property management followed by every suburb across the whole of Brisbane, even in suburbs, didn't manage property. In fact, in one case, a guy rang me up from Melbourne and said, I've just Googled property management Melbourne and Rental Express come up as the number one website and you don't even manage property in Melbourne. And it's because we were very early adopters of you know content online. We had a website that specifically appealed to you know the property management industry. We had lots of backlinks uh, from authoritative sites, which back then was the holy grail in search engine optimization. And this was at a time when literally no one had heard of search engine optimization. And that was just because being someone who likes learning, learned how to do it. And for the early years, did it myself. And it generated huge amounts of business for us. So you win that work. How do you then retain those customers? One of the interesting things about property management, and one of the downsides of being in the property management industry is when you 
when you rock up to a barbecue and people ask what you do, they've always got a, a terrible story about, well, my property management is terrible, they do this, and you know I've got these terrible tenants and they do that. It's kind of a, a bad news industry. Uh, and that's because you know there is definitely a perception out there that service provided in the industry is terrible, and, and it is. Um, you know, largely speaking, service provided to owners and tenants uh, in properties is, is pretty poor. You know, we did a lot of things to change that. The biggest reason behind that is because there is actually a lot of hidden work behind managing a property effectively that an owner places little value on. You know, part of the service is they have to pay for that. So things like legislative requirements, things like when you collect a bond from a tenant, you have to send it off to a, a, you know, a state government. You know, you have to have smoke alarms checked. Now, all of these things are legislative requirements that a property manager has to do that a tenant and an owner see little value in, but it costs money to do. And what they're really looking at is the things that they think are important, which only make up a very small part of what you do, but you've got to provide the whole service to stay within the bounds of the law. So you get this scenario where it's actually very, very hard to provide value in terms of what they're expecting in, you know, in, in comparison for the amount of money they're providing you. It's a, it's a high volume, low margin business. And as a result, service across the industry is pretty poor. Uh, so what we did is we looked at it and sort of said, well, how can we automate large amounts, you know, numbers of these processes? Um, what can we do with technology to do that? And we developed a whole bunch of software within the organization, some of which is now used across the entire industry. Things like electronic key tracking. So in our organization, when you're managing you know, 5,000 properties and each of those properties has two sets of keys and each property has 10 keys on it for windows and back doors. You're talking, you know, tens of thousands of keys. You're talking tons of keys. I remember, you know, when we move office, we we get, you know, removalists in. You need six people to carry the key cabinet out because keys are actually really heavy and they go missing all the time and it's incredibly inefficient. So we developed an electronic key tracking system so we knew where keys were, who last had them, and if a, you know, a, a plumber takes a set of keys to get into a property to fix a, a, a leaking tap, you know, that plumber would get a text message at 7 a.m. every morning until we got that set of keys back, which makes the business more efficient because we're not losing keys and therefore having to go and get them cut, etc., etc. And getting a key cut isn't a big deal, but getting 10,000 individual keys cut, you know, three a day across six or seven offices is just a massive waste of resources. So we were, able to, we were effectively able to eliminate that problem through technology. And that's just one of, you know, there'd be five or six examples. You think that goes back to your entrepreneurial trades of being inquisitive about finding a better way? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's always a better way to do something. And and especially with technology. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a big believer in investing in, in technology to improve efficiencies in businesses. So we touched on before, you've had a string of business successes. You've, you've started them, you've scaled them, you've sold them. Uh, was that always the vision when you went into those companies or did opportunity knock and you listened? Talk to us a bit about that. Oh, I was lucky. Yeah, the first business started, which was the clothing company, Scody. Um, the company still exists, quite a, quite a large manufacturer. In fact, I, my understanding is the largest Australian-based manufacturer of cycling clothing. And we started that because I was in a triathlon club and I was the secretary of a triathlon club and I was a student and I had no money. And my job was to organise the club uniforms. And when I went to the incumbents that were out there, I worked out that I wouldn't be able to afford to buy one of the uniforms because the cost was so much. And I thought, how really, how much can this be to, to manufacture yourself? And I knew a guy who manufactured rash shirts for surf life saving clubs. So I went along to him and said, can, can you make this stuff? And he said, sure. So we kind of set up a business together um, and we went and copied a whole bunch of patterns from competitors and we made these you know, triathlon uniforms and we came in at half the cost of what our competitors were. I should point out there was no profit in it, uh, <laughs> which I didn't know at the time. I thought we were making money, but yeah. I didn't really understand much about business at the time. <laughs> they turned out really well and then another triathlon, Grafton Triathlon Club wanted some and then the Surface Paradise Triathlon Club wanted some and then a surf club wanted you know, their gear and all of a sudden we had a business. And so... It wasn't by design. It was. It was just I was. I don't know. Right place at the right time. And so, if that was your first venture into uh, a business outside of obviously the the various things that you run at school, what about the ones that followed that? Was it always with a vision of having an exit? Not at first. So my first few businesses, I actually exited really poorly. In fact, the, the clothing manufacturer, I kind of woke up one morning and thought, we've got give or take a bit, twenty-ish percent of the Australian market. 
and and that that, that might sound great, but it's actually it was a tiny market, <laughs> so it actually wasn't. I thought, yeah, you know, we could get a hundred percent, and this is not going to get me on the BRW Rich Two Hundred list. So I'm in the wrong industry. So I sat with my business partner, said, oh, I'm a bit sick of doing this. Do you want to buy my share? Oh no, I actually said, shall we sell the business? And he said, well, why don't I buy your share? And literally five minute, minutes later, we'd come up with the price and do it was done. It, it was a probably ten minute conversation, and so that was pretty poor. He turned around and sold my share for 10 times that two years <laughs> later. And then another two years after that, it sold for about 40 times what I sold it to him for. So, you know, that was a learning uh, learning curve. But I sort of looked at it and thought my, my second business actually was as a consultant. So I helped a whole lot of small businesses with sales and marketing. I learned a lot there around how to create value in a business. And then subsequently to that, I really was working towards exiting business as well. And I think Rental Express was the one I really probably executed the best. Um, out of them all I've subsequently got better and, and there was a vision to exit absolutely yeah yeah, okay. yeah. Rental Express was, yep. was built to sell from day one yep uh, we talked a bit about the challenges that come with working in property management not always the most glamorous job in the world and particularly for property managers dealing with some of the challenges that come across the desk how did you engage and retain those guys to enjoy their job and maybe you touched on a little bit before about you know creating a sense of fun and, and that sort of thing and, and helping them grow as individuals but how did you get people to sort of stick around and enjoy their job as property managers? Absolutely, yeah. The property manager is the person who's kind of like the meat in a pretty ordinary sandwich. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the tenant wants to do one thing, owner doesn't want to do it. You're the person in between that has to sort of arbitrate between them uh, or mediate between them. And the industry has a massive turnover. So in Queensland, the average property manager stays in a role for nine months. Huge turnover. Uh, we had in our business, that was about 2.6 years. So significantly better than industry, but... Still, you, you've got you know, over 100 staff. That's still big turnover. So a big issue even in our business, despite the fact that we tracked way above the average. Um, so we did a number of things in order to prevent that. The first thing we did is we looked at what are the things that property managers really dislike doing. And, and one of those is after-hours phone calls on their mobiles. So we just said, well, look, we're going to treat ourselves like a bank. You know, if, if you want to contact your bank manager you know, after-hours on a mobile phone, you can't because they're closed. So we said the same thing. So we stopped advertising property managed mobile phones on websites and we said, sorry owners, sorry tenants, you can't contact the property manager late at night. Mm -hmm. If you've got a, an emergency, you've got instructions on how to deal with that and you can contact our after hours emergency service providers and get that problem fixed, we don't want to know about it. And so that immediately eliminated sort of the, the issue that property managers constantly have is that they're always in demand. Yeah, with no loss of customers. With no loss of customers. And that was, and that was groundbreaking at the time. I know that sounds pretty basic, but... You know, there wasn't a property management company in the country where owners didn't have the phone number, the mobile phone number of their property manager. That was, that was the first thing. The second thing we did is we said, well, why do property managers have to work weekends? And in the industry, uh, all property management company had property managers working on the weekends. And we sort of looked at it and said, why don't we take up the tasks that need to be done on a weekend and actually use uh, independent contractors or part-time staff in order to deal with those. And they're typically not the complex things. They're usually things like showing tenants through properties, and that's not a complex thing to do. And what we've found is we actually get much cheaper labour doing that. University students that want part-time work, sure, we had to get them registered, which means they had to get a, their uh, real estate agent's licence and that sort of thing, or their registration. But it was pretty easy to do. And so we eliminated after-hours phone calls and weekend work. And that alone, you know, doubled retention rates. And that's before you start talking about some of the, you know, the performance incentives that we had in place. A classic irony in the property management industry is that if you manage a portfolio of 100 properties and you're really good at what you do and you get paid $50,000 a year for doing that, then you have owners that give you another property. So you've got 101 and then 102, 103. And so by doing a good job, you create more work for yourself and don't get paid anything extra. And that is actually still the status quo in the industry. So by paying people a flat salary, you're actually incentivizing them to do a poor job. Uh, so we looked at it and said, well, that doesn't make any sense. We, we're going to pay people based not on uh, an annual salary, but on how many properties that they can manage effectively. And the more they, that they can manage, the more we'll pay them. So we had staff that were earning 50, 60% more than the industry because simply they were, they were more capable. Fantastic things there in terms of just getting to the root cause of why people would maybe move on and trying to mitigate those things and then also trying to incentivize the right behavior, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, people do what they get the rewarders to do. Yeah, pretty simple, yeah. but clearly not many yeah. people were doing that. That's right. So that so was good. And also having the courage to maybe buck the trends around weekend work, after hours, phone calls, and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So I'm going to talk to you a, a little bit about your learning. Uh, obviously, you've been a, a lifelong learner. Talk to us about your decision around deciding to pursue an MBA and post the MBA, how much it's shaped your career as a leader. Funnily enough, in the, in the entrepreneurial sort of world, I, I copped a lot of flack for doing an MBA. <laughs> a lot of people sort of said to me, why are you wasting your time? Do an MBA so that you stick it on your resume so you can get a job that pays you more. And that's, that is why a lot of people do an MBA. I looked at it and thought, I've got a, a whole lot of really specific business experience in, in certain areas. And there are, in fact, areas that I actually know very little about. I, I did a what they call a, a senior executive MBA. And I was the youngest or probably the second or third youngest person in my class. So these were all people who were you know, senior partners in the biggest law firms in the country. They were running public listed companies. It was a, a fantastic group of people from a networking perspective. So I managed to get myself in, in, into that course. And what was interesting is that what I expected to learn, I, I didn't learn. And it's a classic example of sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And so I had this, you know, perception that I was probably going to improve my finance skills. Uh, and I did. I thought that's probably one of the things I'll, I'll get a fair bit out of. Learn more about the public markets, public equity markets, and 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 what have you, which is you know getting into you know venture capital and private equity. That was something I wanted to learn more about. But there were some some really interesting things I learned about that I really didn't even know. So in a, for a long time in my businesses, I'd been making operational improvements, but I didn't really understand there was a whole you know discipline around operations management. Um, you know, removing bottlenecks and improving processes. So that was probably a, a, you know, a real eye-opener for me, as was some of the international business, you know, stuff around doing business in, you know, particularly in Asia. Uh, so we did quite a lot of the that, that course overseas. I uh, did some time in China, did some time in the US, uh, some time in Germany. So got exposed to sort of European, you know, North American and Asian markets and, and how business operates over there, which was really, really interesting. So, and, you know, the other reason I did it was because I thought it'd be fun. Um, and it was so <laughs> you know and and how has it how has it changed what i do i think it's changed my perception on businesses significantly i look at different things sometimes as a result of going into businesses you know i probably didn't change the way i manage people you know much because i think that's one of the things that i i got the hang of and did well at early but certainly other areas around some of the more in-depth financial uh, analysis of businesses it's helped me as well you know great and no doubt a discipline that you had to show to run businesses concurrent with study? Uh, yeah, well, the, the, the reason I did a senior executive MBA um, and the reason I did it at Melbourne Business School was they had a, a system where you basically go and live in full-time for a month and you work from 8 in the morning till 10, 12 at night every day for a month to get the middle weekend off. Um, and you're kind of immersed in what yeah. you're doing. And so that actually worked well for me as, as, a, as a business owner. I you know, had a fair bit of flexibility, so that worked well for me. And it also resulted, meant that the other people that were doing it were very, very senior in their roles because they weren't. They couldn't just take four random months off over the course of sort of 18 months to do it. So it uh, resulted in having a very good cohort of people I went through with. But I've always sort of mixed business with, with study in fact, I'm off to the University of California in two weeks at Berkeley um, to do a, a course there on, on venture capital investment. So I'm always doing stuff and have always done and will always continue to do. I want to move past the tuition you've you've done and about to do and then talk about maybe people that have had a, uh, an impact in your career as a leader, as an entrepreneur. Has there been anyone that sort of sticks out that sort of shaped you as a leader and entrepreneur? Yes, uh, yeah, there's been, been a few. I've never had a, a mentor. Mm-hmm. Per se, I actually think that's been a mistake. Kind of thinking I should get one now. You can always learn something off someone, um, irrespective of what they do and and irrespective of their success. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm actually, you know, people, some people laugh when I say that, but I actually am. I think, you know, early on, I had in my in my early Harcourts days, the CEO of Harcourts in Australia, in fact, Harcourts International, is a guy called Mike Green, and I remember I was I was upset because a, a couple of my salespeople had left. And in, and in real estate sales, there's a big flaw in the business, and that is that a lot of your revenue is tied up with your key salespeople. And a couple of my salespeople left, and I was, you know, having a, a, a minor meltdown because a lot of revenue had literally just walked out the door. And I remember him saying something. He said, look around, look around the room. He said, every single person in this room is eventually going to leave. You just, got to, you just got to figure out a way to deal with it. And, and the irony of that is that, that actually, in the end, I was the person to leave. So I stepped out of you know, my real estate business a few years before I, before I sold it and handed it over to a CEO. And that is so true. Everyone is leaving. What you need to do is you need to develop a business that, that can handle that. 
particularly when you're providing a service because in the services industry, your people are everything because they provide the service. They are your product. The longer you can get them to stay, the better, but understand that nobody stays forever. And that was, that was just one of those moments I, I remember thinking, that's actually really valuable advice. Everyone's learning. Everyone's leaving. Just learn to deal with it. So if you haven't had a mentor, and that's a good example of maybe learning in a specific uh, situation of how he sort of looked at that sort of scenario of people leaving, is there any leader that uh, you look up to? Oh, there's lots, lots of leaders that I look Anyone up to. Sort of sticks um, in? So, so Jack Welch, former CEO of uh, GE, read a lot of his books and been to sort of a lot of courses around some of his philosophies around lean thinking. He was obviously big in Six Sigma, uh, which is you know, operations management, you know, improving you know, process. You know, certainly a lot around what he did with, with GE around incentivizing people. Yeah, he's pretty ruthless. Cutting the bottom 10% was one of his famous things. You know, we're going to cut the 10% of our, our organization in terms of the, the people that are there because we want to replace them with, with people that can be in the top 10%. And I've always been very much a believer in, in having straight-to-the-point conversations with people. You know, if, if you're not performing, um, you know, perhaps there's another role somewhere else where you could perform better and you'll actually be happier. And maybe we need to have a chat about that. Mm. Um, or if you're not going to live by our values, mm. that's fine. We can still be friends. You just can't work here. Mm. Those sorts of conversations are really important. And, and some of that has uh, been, you know, I, I think I've learned from, from some, of, some, some of the stuff that, that he's written about and talked about uh, over the years. So that would be one that springs to mind, yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of shift tack in terms of what you're up to now, your next exciting project. So you've now started Australia's first real estate venture fund and Pilab venture partners uh, why have you decided to go into venture capital and, and maybe you can sort of talk to us a little bit about um, you know some of the dynamics that uh, that are present in industries that are right for disruption and maybe real estate is one of them yeah sure so so the first question was why why venture capital uh, I obviously started a number of businesses uh, and they've all gone relatively well but there's also a lot of time and effort and energy in, in starting a business from scratch in a new industry. And, you know, I sort of question, you know, one of the things, one of the advantages of having exited a few businesses relatively well is that you can actually bypass those first few years with with cash. You can you can invest in businesses that have gone through those first, you know, few hard years. And also look at it, you know, one of the things I really enjoy doing is helping other people, you know, grow. And obviously I've got a lot of experience as a result of the, the successes, you know, and, and the mistakes, I should point out, that, that I've made over the years. And I think that, that a key part, key piece of the puzzle that a venture capitalist brings to the table is not just, not just capital, but also expertise and advice and mentorship. And I really enjoy watching that sort of stuff happen. Businesses grow, people grow. So that was, that's my sort of idea behind, you know, getting into the venture capital space. What are some of the dynamics around industries that are likely to be disrupted? Was the second part of the question, I think. I think the world is in for massive disruption, but I don't think it's all negative. It's very often portrayed as being negative. Reading a, uh, an article just the other day around, you know, the loss, you know, the future of work. And there's a whole range of studies out there that's, that say, you know, this number of jobs are going to be lost, you know. And the studies range between 47 and 80-odd percent of you know, total work as we know, total jobs as we know are going to be gone in the next 20 years. And that's staggering. 47% of total jobs as we, as we know them today are going to be gone. And, and that sounds catastrophic, but that's actually happened before. So I read an article the other day that was, was talking about the history of farming. And if you go back to the uh, sort of the, 18, the 1800s, you know, in the United States, it was something around 85% of all people were employed in farming. And now that's less than 2%. So it's not like this hasn't happened before. It has happened, and it's happened multiple times over history. What's different is probably the speed with which it's going to happen, and, and that's the thing that we need to really come to terms with, how quickly some of these jobs are going to be wiped out, and what does that also mean for education? Are we, are we educating children now with the skills that they need in the future? Because you know, once upon a time, education was all about knowledge. What, what do you know? But knowledge is abundantly available and free and, and any 10-year-old kid can know the answer to any question in a matter of seconds, whereas that wasn't possible 10 years ago. The way that, that society is going to develop over the next 20 years is, is going to be crucial as to whether the technological disruption that we're going to be experiencing is positive or negative. But there's no doubt that a lot of it is going to be positive. We talk about things like genetically modified food. You can, you can 3D print beef patties for hamburgers now. 
You don't need cows to create beef. Now that's staggering, but also catastrophic for certain industries. But it also means that we're going to be able to feed hundreds of millions, possibly billions of starving people. And in fact, poverty in terms of a lack of food to eat is, is at an all-time historical low. You know, people living under the poverty line in most Western countries have houses with air conditioning, have cars, um, but they're still considered to be in poverty. And that, that's quite staggering when you think about it. And that, of course, is not the case all over the planet. But technolo- you know, technology is, is actually driving abundance while at the same time driving disruption. So there are both positives and, and negatives to be had from it. And that's, I think, a point that's lost on a lot of people. Change and disruptions always occurred, just the rate of change and the rate of disruption is getting quicker. Absolutely. And people are always trying to find a better way, whether it was 100 years ago or what it is today, but maybe the rate in which industries could be changed or disrupted is, is happening a lot quicker than what it did 100 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And the base of, of most technological disruption at the moment is the price doubling performance of computing power, which effectively means that you know, every year for a very, very long period of time, over 100 years, the computer processing power that you can buy for, say, $1,000 has been doubling every 12 to 18 months. And what we're now at is a, a time in history where we've got this exponential graph and the computer processing power is going through the roof, which has enabled all of these other technologies to simultaneously advance at huge rates. And that's what's causing, you know, right now in history, the wave of, of technological change. I mean, I gave it... A presentation at a conference a few days ago and one of the things I was talking about is that the computer processing power you have in an iPhone 6 is more than NASA had at their entire disposal when they put a man on the moon and if you had a, if you say today imagine what society is going to be like if every human being walking around the planet right now had the, the, the computer processing power in their pocket that the whole of the United States government has right now what would the world look like? Can you imagine that? Imagine if, if you could have in your pocket right now the computer processing power that the entire United States government has at their disposal. Would the world change? The answer to that is yes. And so it's not surprising that the world's changing right now because we've all got in our pockets the entire computer processing power that NASA had at their disposal just 40 or 50 years ago. And so it's not surprising that it's, that it's happening. It's just a question of how we, how we deal with it that counts. Absolutely. Now, at this stage, the listeners are probably thinking pretty much everything you've touched has turned to gold. There's a bit of a, a good run you've developed here. So we're going to talk to you a bit about adversity now. Can you talk to us about any incidences of, uh, of adversity and how you maybe dealt with that and what you've learned from it? Oh, absolutely. And the first thing I want to correct you on is that not everything I've touched has turned to gold. So that is absolutely not the case. I've probably made more mistakes than most people, which has potentially resulted in learnings that have resulted in subsequent successes. Yeah, I've had a lot of adversity. I'd say one of the biggest things I had from an adversity perspective was my time in the army. I was in the army. I was uh, I started just you know in the infantry and I loved it. And uh, I, I went to the I was selected to go to the Royal Military College. I loved it, and I ended up getting injured. And what that meant effectively is I couldn't go back to the infantry or any of the combat related sort of roles within the army. And that was at the time devastating for me because kind of you don't join the army to sit behind a desk and you know fill out forms. I left the army and I thought it was kind of like just the worst thing that ever happened to me. But, you know, out of every piece of adversity or, you know, know, comes some sort of opportunity. And, you know, I went to university, I did a sports science degree, which I've never done anything with, but was interested in sport. Hence, my first business was born, which was the clothing, the sports clothing manufacturer, Scotty's. And that really set me up on, on sort of the journey that I've taken since. So... I think that was a lesson, you know, when one opportunity closes, another another opportunity potentially opens. So that's that's sort of an example. There's been others as well. I mean, if you look at one of the things we did at, uh, you know, in the real estate business, we got into the mortgage broking, you know, market. And I sort of figured that everything I've had a go at works. So I'll just, this will just be another industry that will grow at, you know, grow in at a, at a rapid rate. And I was sorely mistaken. So we opened offices, we took out leases, we recruited mortgage brokers and about two weeks after we opened our first office and we were past the point of no return westpac came out and said you know instead of providing you know 25 basis points of commission to to mortgage brokers we're going to change that to 15 and the other three major banks followed suit within a week and all of a sudden 40 percent of total commission was cut out of the industry 
And then we went into a, you know, global financial crisis and the whole thing fell apart and in the end we just shut the whole thing down. You know, we lost some money, but it wasn't catastrophic. And we thought, okay, well, maybe the learning from that is let's just do one thing and do it really, really well. And that's, that's, that's how Rental Express came about. Um, so focus. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's been a big learning curve. Do one thing, do it really, really well. And that's, I mean, if you look at our venture capital fund, most venture capital funds are very generic. Ours is very, very specific. We're looking at investing in businesses that have some sort of technology-enabled products and service that, that fits around the real estate industry. So very, very specific in terms of our expertise in, in terms of a, an industry. I like it. I'm going to shift uh, the conversation a little bit about the stress of success or the stresses that come with the pursuit of success. Uh, obviously, you're ambitious, you're driven, you've got uh, expectations, goals you want to hit. Uh, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with stress? Uh, I don't. okay and when i mean i i don't i i've i've learned to switch off and that hasn't come easily i mean we've had lots of things go wrong i mean literally everything that could go wrong in a business has gone wrong in some business that i've owned over the years and i've had moments where i've been in tears because i've thought the world's ended and you know what the world didn't end and so over a period of 20 years of running my own businesses, which, you know, other than being in the army, is, is literally all I've done. I've, I've never really worked for anyone else except a, a few chunks of work experience where I've jumped to an organisation to learn what they do and then jumped down to go and start my own. Mm-hmm. I've never really, you know, had anything absolutely catastrophic happen, you know, that, 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 that changes, you know, your, your life. Um, and so there's so much more out there than worrying about what could go wrong and so therefore what I've taken is when I'm at home I don't think about it if that, something's going wrong that's alright if, if we don't invest in a particular deal because it hasn't come off there's, there's, there's always another one and so therefore I've, I've been able to come very detached from the stress of day to day work and I'm also quite disciplined around you know when I'm at work I'm at work and when I'm not I'm not and that's just sort of the way I operate and that's sort of a habit or practices you've developed over time yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would imagine earlier on, maybe oh. pre-family, pre-kids, you know, weekend work, after hours would be all part and parcel of growing a business. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first few years of most of my businesses, it was six, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day. And it's not to say I don't work 10, 12, 14 hour days now. I do. Absolutely. But I do that because I want to do that. And I'm doing that to achieve a particular end. And I also structure that around the family. I've got two young kids, a uh, wife and two young kids, and I want to spend time with them. And so I'm fairly ruthless about my time. So you talked about discipline. So I want to sort of pick up on that and just sort of try and see if you can share any of your rituals or practices that you adopt to get the most out of every day or just in general to operate at your optimum and, and, and get through the important stuff. Uh, yeah, sure. So in my last few businesses, um, I've, I've adopted sort of a, a discipline around accountability and knowing who's doing what based on a book called The Advantage by a guy called Patrick Lencioni. And it basically has a model around how you cascade information and keep people uh, accountable throughout an organization. So, and there's a few people that kind of uh, preach similar sort of practices. Vern Harnish uh, is, is one of those. In fact, some of them, Patrick Lencioni and Vern Harnish have written books almost in collaboration with one another and they refer to each other in some of their books. But the advantage by Patrick Lencioni for me kind of is an all-encompassing sort of view on that. And um, so we do things within our business. We do things like the morning huddle. So every morning, 8.46, Everyone's on the phone. If you're not on the phone uh, at 8:46 before it, you know, sorry, before it actually clocks over to 8:46 on your iPhone, it's a $20 fine. No one's ever late because you know they get fined. Yeah. Uh, the fines just go in a pool and we go out to lunch. You know, so it's only a, you know, you're only shouting the next lunch or the next, you know, drinks or whatever it happens to be. You know, things like that. And we go through, you know, the three basics of okay, what do you got on today? You know, so we know where everybody's going to be. Uh, if you've got anything you're stuck on that you need help from anybody, um, got anything you need to share. And those calls go for, you know, this morning's went for about four minutes. You know, they might go up to about eight minutes. And that way it eliminates huge amounts of internal email going back and forth among each team that does that. You know, now obviously with a venture capital business, not as many people, but when you've got, you know, hundreds of staff, you know, the next level down would, would that person would leave, you know, the morning huddle, the executive team, and they would go and do the morning huddle with theirs. And then, you know, middle managers would go into the morning huddle with theirs. And within the space of 45 minutes, if you need some sort of information communicated across the entire organisation, then it's effectively done. Yep. So that's one of the things I've been particularly specific about in all of the businesses. And there's kind of some extensions of that in terms of, you know, weekly, monthly, quarterly planning that that that, that book talks about, which has been a, a game changer in, in my view in, in business. 
personally, I'm big on lists. So I use, um, there's lots of software you can use for creating lists. I use a program called Momentum, which is um, like a, every time you click on you know, your Chrome browser, it pops up and your list pops up. That's pretty basic software. First thing I do at the beginning of the day, before my morning huddle is go, right, what's my number one priority for the day? What other things would I like to get done? And that way I've got it before my morning huddle so I know what I'm gonna tell everyone that I'm doing today. And whatever I don't get done, obviously just flicks over the next day. So big user of, of really basic technology. And I've looked at pretty much every to-do list on the planet and there's some really complicated things out there. Momentum is really simple and it's it's free or $2 a month or something like that. So that's what I use. So there's some of the things I do from a, a self-discipline perspective. A philosophical uh, question or questions. How do you personally define success? I think success is about being happy. Certainly not financial. Was that always the, your definition? No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> funny, funny that. It's, that's actually a really, yeah. that's a really good yeah. question. No, that wasn't always my perspective. I think. <laughs> what changed that? I think what changed that is when you get to the point where you no longer have to worry where the next paycheck's coming from, you all of a sudden realise that that's actually, and not so much worry about. One of the things I, I saw a lot, particularly in the real estate industry, where you've got a lot of very high paid people like the, the the good agents and it's very hard to be an, an excellent real estate agent a lot of people go well how, how hard can it be you stick a sign up you sell a house you get paid fifty thousand dollars it's actually incredibly hard something like a, an 85 percent failure rate of all people getting into the real estate industry it's a very difficult role but the good the ones that are good at it do extraordinarily well in terms of their their cash earnings but one of the things i noticed over time is that the more they earn the more they spend people spend relative to the amount of money they earn and it doesn't make them any happier. Sure, they go from driving the Toyota Corolla to the BMW to the Merc to the to the whatever else. It doesn't it doesn't actually make them any happier. And in fact, what they then got to do is work harder in, in order to maintain that. And in some cases, it actually makes them unhappier. And I must confess, I saw myself doing the same thing, uh, you know, over a period of time. And and kind of because I sort of noticed it, I, I tend not to do that. I don't have any you know, particularly extravagant, you know, hobbies. I quite like traveling, you know, but I don't fly around the world first class or even business class. I mean, all of our internal travel within the business is all economy class because does it really make a difference if you sit in a slightly bigger seat when you're flying to Sydney or Melbourne or, or wherever? And a lot of people would disagree with me on that. And I think it, it probably does when you're doing long haul flights, but being happy, is is in my view the ultimate measure of success but sometimes it's it's hard to to see that and being happy for me is actually working really hard i i love what i do and so therefore working doing it putting in a 12-hour day is is for me a lot of fun if i didn't like doing it I, I wouldn't do it and i think that's the ultimate measure of success are you genuinely happy doing what you're doing and if you're not you should stop doing it because no amount of money is worth not being happy now it's good that you've had that realization many people keep pursuing what they think that definition of successes even though you know maybe consciously they realize it's not making them happy but yep. maybe they're they're too leveraged or they, they they just don't think a change is possible right yeah and so i think that's a shame so it's, it's good that you've acted on some of that stuff so yep. just picking up on that question what drives you i mean why do you do all the stuff that you do you know the business success and, and everything else your ongoing learning what drives you why i think it's it's just it's fun it's sort of my it's almost like it's my hobby can't stress enough how much I like learning. So take the venture capital industry, you know, for example. So I spent, you know, a small amount of time, uh, you know, working in a private equity firm, an ASX listed private equity firm, to, to learn the, some of the basics of fund management. Um, and it was a massive learning. Like I, I knew nothing when I went in there, and I learned a, a lot from some really skilled people who were clearly much smarter than me. Um, and um, you know, when I sold the business, I thought, oh, well, well, maybe I could start my own venture capital fund and go and do that. And so. You know, even though I said I wouldn't do another startup, it actually is a startup. Uh, you're starting from scratch in an industry you don't know a huge amount about. But what I've found is that I, I really enjoy learning how it works, you know, doing the study, reading the books, speaking to those people that are experts. You know, and one of the most important things when you're getting any business up and running is that people that are, that are great at what they do will always share their, their secrets to success. And so the first thing I did is literally said to the team, and we've got, only got a small team, you know, one of the things we all need to do every single week is speak to someone else in the venture capital industry who's doing a better job than what we are so that we can learn what they're doing. 
And nobody has ever had rejection. Nobody's ever rung up and said, do you mind if I ask you a few questions about what you do and had anyone say no? Because everyone says yes. And fortunately, we're in a pretty collaborative industry. But I found the same thing in the real estate space as well, which is incredibly competitive. Everyone will share you know, what they do uh, if you've got enough interest to ask. And in some cases, you can't shut them up. Maybe this is one of those cases. So that's one of the things that drives me is that constant wanting to know more. So you're inquisitive and then you, you really just love that ongoing learning. Absolutely. And I really enjoy watching people develop. You know, so some of the other guys in, in the fund you know, that I'm working with are not out of, from that entrepreneurial background. Some, some guys out of you know, the investment banking space and that sort of thing. So what they're learning about is the entrepreneurial journey. You know, they've never run businesses themselves. What I'm learning from them is, you know, their analytical skills around finance and mergers and acquisitions. So the whole thing is just a one big learning environment. If you're not learning something new, then you're probably slowly dying. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it helps with engagement and enjoyment and, and all that sort of stuff. So yep. how do you maintain harmony as an uh, ambitious person? You mentioned, you know, 10, 12, 14 hour days occasionally. You've got a young family. How, how do you maintain that sort of harmony outside of getting better at saying, right, work is work, home is home. So there's sort of two answers to this. The first is that if you're really new to business, I don't, I don't, I think it's very hard to succeed without being a workaholic. And I think there's very few examples of perfect work-life balance where someone has created enormous business success and not at the same time, and at the same time work nine to five. I just, I've, I've never seen it happen. Maybe it does. I've, I've never seen it happen. You know, how do you, how do you maintain that harmony? Kind of goes back to that question earlier. When, when you're off, you're off. So when I get home and I'm not working and I'm not expecting a call that hasn't been booked in, I don't answer my phone. And that's probably frustrating for some people, but chances are it could wait. And as you get more people in your organisation, that becomes harder and harder. And, that, and that's where the real skill is, employing people that can deal with the issues. As you get more and more layers of, of, of management across an organisation, your vision of, of what you're trying to achieve gets harder and harder to communicate. And the real skill is employing people that are, that are on board in terms of that, that alignment of vision and having them be able to communicate it the way you can in order to keep the entire organisation engaged. And what a lot of people fall in the trap of as their business grows is they think they need to take you know, the, the phone call of Joe Bloggs who's just broken up with their partner and needs somewhere to sleep for the night. And I think the real keys is, is employing the people that can take those calls and deal with them effectively and got the right levels of emotional intelligence to, to solve those problems and, and make people feel connected and valued at, at work so that they're productive and the organisation is, is successful. You know, so answer your question, work-life balance is really hard, especially early days in, in running a business and, in fact, almost impossible. But over time you tend to learn to switch off. And I think that's one of the key things. I don't work a 40-hour week, but I probably have eight to 10 weeks of actual holidays a year with the family. So while I'm probably, you know, not sitting on the couch at eight o'clock at night, you know, watching a movie with my wife, and I am some days of the week, but a lot of the nights of the week, last night was an example, I wasn't. I was doing some work. So that's, that's how what I What about it. other things, whether it's uh, sport, education, uh, other things that just allow you to get away from work? Yeah, uh, I, once again, I think really important. Tougher when you've got, in my case, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, two boys, you know, because they always want dad to be around. But I still do my own stuff, so I still write a fair bit. Every year I have some new challenge. So this year it's, it's learning to play polo. So step one, learn to ride a horse. <laughs> so, you know, I go to horse riding lessons once a week to, to learn how to ride a horse. When you're doing something that you actually don't know how to do, you've got to focus, be here and there. Otherwise, you know, in my case, you fall off the horse. Um, so yeah. I do a lot of that. But I typically do that around times that doesn't impact the family. Great. I'm going to get out of your head for a moment. And if I was to ask you how your wife would define you or describe you, what would she say? I think she would say I'm pretty permanently positive. You know, people say I'm having a bad day. I'm like, oh, I want you to have a bad 10 minutes. <laughs> it's much yeah. less stressful, yeah. uh, you know, solve for 10 minutes and then yeah. get on with life. Yep. Uh, so so pretty, pretty positive. That would probably be something that she would describe me as. Uh, always thinking about, you know, the next this, the next that, what, what could happen if we did this, you know. So always kind of coming up with pretty questionable ideas about stuff we should do. Um, I think she would probably describe me as uh, a bit obsessed. You know, when I get my mind in, I'm going to I'm going to learn to do this, or I'm going to learn to do that. 
you know, we're having dinner on Saturday. And I said, I'm thinking of doing a PhD. What do you think about that? <laughs> he said, oh, she said, you sure you haven't got enough on at the moment? <laughs> good question. That's a good question. She's yeah. good at asking those questions. And I thought about it. I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll leave that one to the second half of the year. So, um, <laughs> so uh, and I don't even, and she's like, well, in what? I'm like, I don't really know, but, but you know, I'm sure I can find something. Um <laughs> I think she described me as positive, always coming up with new things to do, uh, sometimes for no apparent reason. Probably a little bit obsessed. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Hey, uh, looking back, uh, you've obviously got a, a beautiful young family. You've built multiple great businesses, accumulated a level of wealth, no doubt, for your family, uh, which is great. And uh, you're well on your way to leaving a, a really positive legacy. If you were to, to pan back to that 21-year-old and... You know, speak to that person. What wisdom would you impart on that ambitious entrepreneurial twenty-one-year-old that you know now? It's a good question. I think, I think what I would share with someone in that situation, with a younger version of me, is uh, don't worry when things go wrong. So understand that that mistakes are going to happen all the time, and you're going to make some dumb mistakes. But in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because. As long as you learn from those mistakes, you'll continuously get better. And it's, you know, life is not about accumulating, you know, wealth. I have absolutely no ambition to be a, a billionaire or anything like that. In fact, uh, a lot of billionaires are, you know, borderline psychopaths in my experience. So uh, be happy. Be happy. Enjoy life. And don't worry about making mistakes because you'll make lots of them. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about what you've achieved thus far. You've got some other ambitions on the horizon, whether it's polo, maybe a PhD. <laughs> uh, what uh, what's left to achieve and why? Where to from here? Oh, heaps of stuff is left to achieve. Yeah, you know, sort of funny. Oh, this is going to spin you out a bit, but I, I have this this philosophy that with the rate at which technology is growing, it, it's highly likely that people sort of your age and my age, and I'm making some assumptions here that you're roughly my age, somewhere around yeah. early forties, late thirties, something like that. It's it's highly likely that if you remain relatively healthy. You could live, and this is going to spin some people out and think that I'm a lunatic and that they've just wasted their time. But, you know, listening to what I'm saying, it is, it is very real that you could live a multi-century lifespan. And most people sort of hear that and go, ah, that's ludicrous. But I challenge you before you tell me I'm ludicrous in saying that to, to start looking at the research of what's happening in medicine. Because I've heard some incredibly learned people talk about not just living 100, 150 years, but talking about living 200, 300, 400 year lifespans. So, you know, what's left? Well, a few hundred years would be my answer to that. So lots and lots and lots. I'm going to certainly be in, in the, the, the venture capital business for the foreseeable future, at least 10, 15 years. It's a long-term play for me. But is it going to be my last business? Likely not. Um, you know, I, I don't know what's left, but I've got a, a very long bucket list. And if, if I live to the average age, which I think currently about 86 or something like that, I'm not even going to achieve half of the things. So, uh, so. You know, what's left? Lots. Lots and lots. Yeah. Now, look, Chris, uh, congratulations on everything you've achieved thus far. It's been very impressive. Obviously, you've inspired a lot of people and, and really thank you for taking the time to share your journey. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will take a lot from it. So all the best with what comes next. No worries. Thank you. Thank you.